Hello and good evening. My name is Robert Taylor, broadcasting live from the Gold Coast British Colony. Today we've got a crack of a match to you. The All Blacks versus the All Whites. And on the All Blacks team we got the famous Jikile Shobani. Let's get this game underway. The All Blacks have opted to start with the ball facing the North Stand. And we have a great festivities here today in the Gold Coast. There's festivities, there's dancing, there's music. It's loud, it's beautiful, it's lively. This is unlike anything I've ever seen back home in England. Alright, Jigalesho Benny has the ball. He starts, he dribbles forward, he feints right, feints left, he takes it back. I've never seen skills quite like this. He's going, he's going, and he shoots, and right through the goalkeeper of the All-Whites. It is already 1-0. What a goal. You know what they say about Jigalesho Benny. Those dribbling, he's the one who controls the reins. This week on Coffee Shop Talk... We're talking about how Africa took the sport of soccer and Africanized it. Building on what we talked about last week about the white man's burden and how soccer was used as a vehicle to civilize the native Africans, this week we're talking about how Africans took the sport and made it uniquely their own. So now that we've established that soccer is familiar throughout the continent, there was early elements of it that perpetuated certain things that maybe weren't the greatest aspects of Africa. For example, at first, football assumed kind of this role to reestablish existing social ties based on tribes, communities, and families. In certain circumstances, elite clubs did exist that represented Africans. And when I say Africans from now on, I mean black Africans. There were elite clubs that only selected from a select group of family in order to forge a certain tradition. It became almost like the old Etonians, the old, all those like crazy British schools that it was really just set within these select group of families. It was also being mirrored in Africa too. However, just as in England, in Africa as well, as time passed, there was increasing evidence of better football teams when you recruit outside of your village or your clan. And more and more clubs started to explore other ways to recruit players. So these early clubs are starting to explore with the idea of bringing in different players. So they're Within these cosmopolitan cities that the, a lot of these clubs existed, there was now a greater desire for institutionalized leagues and competitions. One of the first competitions started in 1922 in the Gold Coast, modern-day Ghana. And this was a British colony at the time, and they had a competition solely within Accra, the capital, a port city, of course, called the Gugersberg Shield. Now, Gugersberg is named after the progressive British governor at the time. He decided that it was time to create a competition for local Africans. And the club, the Hearts of Oak, one of the most famous clubs in Ghanaian history, took 50% of those competitions when it existed between 1922 and the end of World War II. That's a crazy statistic for one club to win 50% of one competition. And they went on to become one of the biggest clubs in Ghana and would inevitably join the Ghanaian Football League in 1956. And this essentially this trend was happening all over the continent, especially within these cosmopolitan cities. Both Africans and 
and I say this in quotations, and I talk about this with Gugersberg too, is they are progressive colonial governors. And a lot of you might be sitting there thinking, well, they're still colonial. How can they be progressive? Well, taken to the context of the time, we can't really judge them based on today's standards. And that's the issue with history most of the time, as many of you know. So we have to look at within the realm of what was happening at that time. They were progressive for organizing these competitions and doing other efforts in order to help local Africans, such as setting up schools, hospitals, and really connecting with their local population. So anyway, both Africans and the progressive colonial governors were helping to organize leagues within capital cities. They were really centralized around capital cities. One, because there were just a lot of people. And two, at this point, logistically speaking, it didn't make sense to create these nationwide leagues. So in cities such as Dar es Salaam in Sudan, Lagos in Nigeria, and Yaoundé in Cameroon. However, with all this progress, racialized lines continue to infect all aspects of life, even football. South Africa, for example, now this is where one of those times I was talking about in episode one, where South Africa is going to have kind of a bad reputation at times. It had three different national tournaments for the three biggest racial groups in the country. The Curry Cup for the whites, the Sam China Cup for the Indians, and the Morocco Baloyi Cup for the Africans. And of course, this competition for Africans was the last to be established. In Rhodesia, which is modern-day Zimbabwe, it saw the creation of two distinct leagues for whites and blacks. But whenever they had inter-district championships between these white and black teams, black teams consistently dominated the competition, winning it a whopping 20 out of 23 times. That's impressive. Furthermore, as time progressed and greater cohesion existed between the colonies, especially when it was under one flag. There was greater interest for inter-territorial competitions. And the first iteration of this came in 1920, which is the precursor to the CAF Champions League, which is essentially like a Champions League, but for African clubs that exist to this day. And this is the first time we see that clubs from different countries or different colonies are playing each other within the continent of Africa. And this was called the North African Champions Cup. And it was between, at first, two colonies under the French banner. It staged regional winners from the nations of Algeria and Tunisia. And they played in a knockout-styled competition. At first, the competition was dominated by Algerian teams, mostly because these teams were a mishmash of local French and uh, local Africans. Because... The way Algeria was set up in relation to a lot of other French colonies was Algeria was seen as a part of France, whereas Morocco or Tunisia or other colonies were seen more as protectorates, as colonies. France made an active effort in order to reshape the structure, culture, and society of Algeria. So greater attention was put onto Algeria, so that's why a lot of these clubs succeeded to begin with. But as Morocco joined the competition later on, they started to win it more and more and more. Tunisian teams would go on to never win a single competition of the North African Champions Cup. I'd like to say on the record, I'm Moroccan, so I take a lot of pride in this statistic of how Moroccan teams started to progress better and better. However, the team that did really well is um, actually a local rival of the club that I support in Morocco, We Dead Casablanca. I'm a big supporter of Raja Casablanca. Anyway, 
Later on in 1926, the British would copy this model and use it in East Africa. They started their own competition between teams in Uganda and Kenya, also in a knockout style competition between regional winners in each of these countries. And what's interesting about this specific interterritorial competition is that it has the first recorded act of corporate sponsorship on the continent when it comes to football. And corporations are going to play a huge, huge role within African football later on. This act of corporate sponsorship, (laughs) a local soap manufacturer donated the trophy. I don't know what they got type of kickback in return, but I guess they got guarantees that both teams would have to use their soap at the end of the game. So as these competitions become more and more and more common, both domestically and interterritorially, it becomes also evident that the people attending these competitions, these games, were making it their own. Africans were making football games and competitions something unique. As I talked about in the beginning and in my fake broadcast with my crappy British accent, football became an event in itself. Competitions and games were intertwined with spectacles, feasts, and popular entertainment, clowns, and like just a general, imagine if you had like a circus at a soccer game, like that, that's essentially what was happening. But on second thought, I do think we actually still have circuses at football matches. The Arsenal boardroom is a big circus. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I can say that because I'm an Arsenal fan and we as a breed are self-deprecating. But anyway, but these fans saw the players that were taking the field, both white and black. They equated them with great warriors, something that they could take pride in. And this is both a good thing in terms of greater passion for the sport, but at the same time, this led to regular occurrences of tribal warfare between fans at these games. Just like the hooliganism that would come to plague European football and British football during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it was also occurring within these African colonies. However, the British looked at them with disdain, saying that they were savage and consistently perpetuated this idea of savagery. Little do they know the same stuff is going to happen to them later on. But with equating your players as great warriors, nicknames were also invented for players. Now, even though the broadcast that I showed earlier was fake, the nickname that I used in it is one that is actually recorded in history. There was a player named Jikile Shobeni, and he was quite famous for his insanely good dribbling skills and we're going to get into this idea of dribbling and individual talent in a bit but but Jikile Shobeni means one who controls the reins as in like the horse reins I mean you have a wild horse and someone who has this ability to control the reins it equated to soccer and this is this idea of seeing your players as great warriors But apart from these competitions where we see great success for African football clubs and at these competitions, the great fanfare associated with them that is uniquely African, from a tactical standpoint, this is where Africans left their biggest mark on the sport. Now, even though early forms of football, especially British football, entailed this kind of idea of kick and rush, where 
It was very rough. It was about just moving the ball from one side to the other. And I'm not talking about that weird mishmash that we talked about in episode one about football and rugby. I mean, even with the soccer version, it was about kicking the ball down the field and having a bunch of guys chase it, just essentially long balling it. Now, it would seem logical that British people are bringing this version of the sport over and Africans are just going to take what they brought them and just play it that way for the rest of their lives. No, there's that's the thing about humans is we're innovative. We try to apply what we know onto what we have. And sometimes our environment doesn't permit for one version and only permits for a certain version. And this is exactly what happened with soccer in Africa from a tactical standpoint. Because of the conditions of their environment, this led to different forms of play. Games were regularly played in streets and sandlots where there was no grass. You needed that greater ability for ball control. The ball rolls too easily on a flat surface as opposed to grass. Also, there was a lack of referees, time limits, and rules, so that means games were rough. And all this coalesced in this desire for spectacular displays of individual talent. The ability to dribble well and improvise your skills was found all over the continent and was something treasured both by the players themselves and by the fans. At times at these games, at these spectacular festivities, fans were more impressed when a player could dribble well or juke out another player rather than the score itself. And it's hard to pinpoint why this is, but this is how it developed. Maybe because of the environment, players were playing a certain way and fans became accustomed to that. And as fans, we always want more of that one thing. Regarding this individual talent, this dribbling, the famous Salif Keita, the Malian footballer who would go on to win the African Footballer of the Year, who played mostly during the 1960s and 1970s for teams such as Saint-Antienne, Marseille, Valencia. And this one I found really funny. His last club that he played for was this short-lived American club named the New England Teamen. Let that sink in, the New England Teamen. Imagine if Tom Brady, Rob Gronkowski, all those guys... I mean, yes, they're playing a different sport, but you know, you hear the name New England Patriots, and it's like, oh, that's kind of that's kind of cool. Imagine some team shows up and they're like, "We're the New England team, and we're here to beat you. We're here to win six Super Bowls." Like, you can't take that seriously. I just found the name hilarious, but Salif Keita played for the New England team, and as a, along with a host of other teams. But what he said in an interview once was that. The skills of African players is not ones that you can really learn in regular training like in Europe. In Europe at this time, players could dribble well, but it was along the lines of this idea of practice makes perfect. Within these trainings, you would drill one type of dribbling move over and over and over and over again, and you could tell is just rehashing what they already know, what they already have drilled before. Salif Keita would go on to say that kids in Africa improvise and develop their individual talents and skills on the street. Now, even though African footballers are adding their own twist to the tactical side by innovating dribbling skills, they still lacked behind European clubs in terms of fitness and overall tactical awareness. 
because of the distance of Africa and the lack of mobility of Africans from their home to the centers of football of South America and Europe, they were unaware of the necessity of fitness and tactics. So instead, the only time they really got awareness of this and were able to learn about this was when touring European clubs would be able to stay for a while, they would provide lessons and show different forms of football. One example of this is the Scottish side, Motherwell. In the 1930s, they toured South Africa, and they showed clubs how they defended and how they played. They showed African sides their idea of active defense. At this time, African teams were really just sitting off, playing it deep, letting the side attack, while Motherwell said, hey, no, you can essentially go and get the ball. Be active about your defensive structure. And this is essentially gay and press. <laughs> but anyway... They also showed them shorter passing styles, which would end up becoming very successful in South Africa. Rather than just dribbling it all the way through or playing these long balls that they adopted from the British, they were also now starting to adopt this idea of shorter passing that a lot of Scottish sides had innovated during the early days of soccer. Furthermore, clubs from Belgium and institutions and soccer associations from Belgium thought that by combining the scientific European approach to soccer, where you drill skills and you understand the game from a almost scientifically tactical standpoint, we could combine it with the natural, and I put this in quotes, natural athleticism of Africans. This racist viewpoint is here again. I should have like a ding every time something racist happens. How about this? We will make America great again. That's going to be my little code whenever I quote something a little racist. <laughs> but I guess I just, I just took a, a political stance. Coffee shop talk just took a political stance. Well, there goes my uh, Chick-fil-A ad money, so that sucks. <laughs> anyway, back to uh, what we were talking about. Even though Africans were now being exposed to European and South American ways of playing the sport and infusing fitness into their own sport, local fans still appreciated African qualities of soccer. And even when African teams would go on and tour European countries, those fans too really, really appreciated the way Africans played their sport. And not even from like a pity point of view. They genuinely liked the way that they played, the, the dribbling, the feints, everything about the way Africans played, they really appreciated. So overall, from the 1910s to the pre-World War II era, we see that competitions were starting to pop up all over the continent that helped to bring the sport to African players. African fans were now making it a festivity, making it their own, and Africans were putting their own spin to how they played, not just adopting whatever was given to them. You could say that Africans took soccer by the reins. That's a callback, if you guys remember. But next week and the week after, we're going to look at something a little more heavy. Now that we know that the sport is firmly in the hands of Africans as well as other people around the globe, we're going to see how Africans use it for their own political gain in order to gain independence and a voice on the global stage. So I hope you join me next week on Coffee Shop Talk. This is your host, Yusuf Ben Mira, signing out and saying, come on, you gunners. <laughs>